Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today for Spirit in Action, we have Patricia Stansbury sitting in for me, sharing a recent broadcast from her Groundswell show on WRIR, Richmond Independent Radio. Patricia is also known as Sunny Gardner, and she brings us today riches from a teach-in by the Virginia Defenders for Freedom, Justice, and Equality, with four of their presenters talking about history and effects of the U.S. military on such places as Iran, Mali, Ukraine, and Cuba. This is all from the live teach-in with lot of environmental noise, of course, plus some efforts, I believe, by counter-protesters to drown out the presentations. I'll let Patricia and the Defenders give you the names and details of the presenters as I turn spirit and action over to them for your education and enlightenment. This is an episode of Groundswell, a Sunny Gardner production for Richmond Independent Radio and other community and low-power FM stations, including the Work FM in Chesterfield County and Northern Spirit Radio on the Internet. Today's show consists of the audio from an anti-war teach-in at Monroe Park, assembled by the Defenders for Freedom, Justice, and Equality. You'll hear the MC and four speakers. The music played throughout is a band called Christiva, and Tymir Gore, a longtime defender, is part of that band, Christiva. Veterans Day is November 11th, every year here in the United States. And how we keep adding to their numbers is beyond me, so I just share stories. The Defenders for Freedom, Justice, and Equality brought together four people familiar with war, and Kat McNeil, chair of the Defenders Anti-War Committee, introduced the speakers. Sanaz Godsi lived in Iran and tells of the effects of the United States' military involvement with Israel, Palestine, Iran, and the whole Middle East, as we call it. Charles Brown is a union activist, but here he speaks of the cold and hot ideological and military wars that surround the blockade against the Cuban people. Yet the nation holds place as a compassionate citizen of the world despite the hardships caused by the U.S. embargo. Anna Edwards tells about the sister cities, Richmond, Virginia, and Segu, Mali, and how Western military and cultural exercises produce poverty, particularly through destroying infrastructure. Anna Edwards is a historian and addresses the past and current situation in Mali. They're still digging out from France's withdrawal in 1960, during which France tore up or removed vital infrastructure, such as the railroad, thereby setting the economy back incalculably. Her description of the military commands maintained all over the planet to preserve U.S. interests is chilling. Phil Willado wraps up the teach-in with a solid history and geography around the wars involving Russia, especially as that history plays out in the war on Ukraine. Frankly, I wish there were a transcript of the entire anti-war teaching. If I were you, I'd just get a warm drink, sit back and listen. Learn how and why the United States military is everywhere. 
welcome to the Defenders Anti-War Teach-In. This event is part of UNAC's Anti-War Week of Action. Um, welcome everyone. I'm glad to see you all here. Uh, today we are having four speakers who are here to help inform you about some events happening around the world. International events are some of the most confusing and difficult to remain informed on. As a contrast to domestic events, domestic events are those that affect our lives here today at home. They are the things that affect our communities, they're the things that affect our neighbors. We see them in our day-to-day -day lives and they have most impact on us here. By contrast, the things that our government does in our name and with our tax money to other people in the world are often difficult for us to see and understand. There's not a lot of clarity on these things. That's why we've brought you four people today who are something of experts on these things. They've been to these countries where people are some of the most affected by U.S. government's actions. And that's why they're going to tell you about these things. Please hold your questions till the end of the event. You'll have the opportunity to ask them. Then if we have some more time, you'll have the opportunity to make some remarks. Following that, if you agree with what we say, if you uh, are convinced, we're going to march down to the intersection of Belvedere and Broad Street and hold some signs. We have five signs for you. We're going to display them at the end. That will be the conclusion of our event. Please welcome Sanaz Godzi. She is our correspondent on the Middle East. She's going to tell you a little bit, give you some updates on events in Palestine and Iran. Sanaz, thank you very much. All right, all right. Hello everybody and thank you for coming to our teach-in today. My name is Sanaz Gatsi and I will be speaking about Israel and Iran, the United States' biggest ally and biggest enemy in the Middle East. According to a report by the Congressional Research Service, since World War II, Israel has been the largest cumulative recipient of U.S. foreign assistance. Under a commitment made by the Obama administration, the United States sends $3.8 billion a year to fund Israel's occupation of Palestine. Since the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948, the United States has provided the occupying regime with $150 billion of bilateral assistance and missile funding on top of fundraising and donations from non-governmental Zionist organizations and individuals. In 2016, the U.S. and Zionist regime signed their third 10-year memorandum of understanding on military aid for the fiscal years of 2019 to 2028. In this memorandum, the United States pledged another $38 billion in military aid to Israel, which includes foreign military financing grants and missile defense appropriations. In fiscal year 2022, the Biden administration requested $3.3 billion in foreign military financing for Israel, and an additional $500 million for missile defense aid, as well as $5 million to fund the Jewish settlement of Palestine. As of February 18, 2022, funded with U.S. assistance, Israel has purchased 50 F-35s, considered to be the most technologically advanced fighter jets ever made. U.S. funding for the Israeli occupation has nearly doubled since 1998 to 2008, while the effects of inflation due to NATO's aggression against Russia decimate the global economy, and as over a million people in the United States, a country with no universal health care, have died of COVID-19. The focus of Zionist colonial expansion in May 2021 focused on the forced expulsion of Palestinians in occupied East Jerusalem, most notably the towns of Silwan, Sheikh Jarrah, and Burqa. 
the eviction of Palestinians to make way for Jewish settlers in the occupied city coincided with the storming of Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Ibrahimi Mosque by violent mobs of Israeli settlers protected and encouraged by Israeli occupation soldiers with the goal of destroying the status quo of Palestinian sacred sites in Jerusalem and therefore eliminating Palestinian presence in the occupied city. For the last three weeks, the United States has been using the hijab law in Iran to justify further sanctions and aggression against the country. On September 16th, a 22-year-old Iranian woman named Masa Amini passed out while in police custody after a verbal altercation with a female guardian patrol referred to by Westerners as morality police. CCTV footage showed Amini fainting inside the building and being transported to a hospital where she later died. According to Iran's legal medicine organization, a forensic investigation of her body showed there were no signs of direct blows to the head or organ damage, but instead there were complications related to brain surgery she had at the age of eight. Claims that she was brutalized for improper hijab began circulating after an Iranian woman named Masuma Alinejad, or sooner named Masi Alinejad, began an internet campaign with the hashtag Masa was murdered, claiming she was beaten to death by Iranian police. Between 2015 and 2022, the U.S. Agency for Global Media paid Ali Najad over $628,000 to spread propaganda against Iran, encouraging Iranian women to film themselves removing their veils in public and posting videos to social media and to demand more sanctions on Iran. She works for Voice of America, funded by the Broadcasting Board of Governors, which receives funding by U.S. Congress to publish harmful narratives of countries that pose a threat to U.S. hegemony. She has met with Trump's former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, as well as former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, who famously stated that the price of killing Iraqi children was worth the U.S. invasion and occupation of their country. Since then, masses of Iranian expats in the West have appropriated Amini's death to push for a color revolution and a regime change war. Kurdish and Baluchi separatists, monarchists, and members of the Mujahideen Ahad, a terrorist organization that sided with Saddam Hussein during the Iran and Iraq war, have vandalized masjids, have threatened to bomb masjids they accuse of being affiliated with the Iranian leadership, and have brutalized veiled women in their domestic countries, including vandalizing the uh, Iranian embassies. With chance geared at Westerners and their warmongering governments to be the voice of Iranian women, it is important to look into the history of this law and who called for it. The former exiled puppet monarchy of Iran banned the veil in his series of social policies referred to as the White Revolution with the goal of westernizing and civilizing Iran. Along with the veil, the cultural clothing of Iran's various ethnic backgrounds were banned as well. After the monarchy's second overthrow and the success of the 1979 Iranian Revolution, women in Iran chose to integrate hijab into the constitution along with their right to revoke it if they desired. In 2014, a poll was conducted with data from all of Iran's provinces, and over 55% of women voted in agreement of the law, and therefore, the law is still legitimate and intact. On January 3, 2020, the United States, under the Trump administration, launched a drone strike, assassinating Iranian General Qasem Soleimani and Iraqi Commander Abu Mahdi al-Mohandez, bringing the country to the brink of war. I sat with my family in Iran wondering what our fate would be as the then president tweeted that the United States was prepared to raise 52 of our millennial old cultural sites to the ground. Where were the masses of people calling for diplomacy, de-escalation, and for hands off of Iran? Where were the masses of Iranian gusanos who are working towards a color revolution and regime change against their country to defend our country against military conflict with the United States? 
And finally, when will people in the United States realize that their enemy is not the global south, but our own leadership who uses taxpayer dollars to fund occupation and war in the Middle East and now Europe? Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Sanaz. All right, next up, we have Charles Brown, who recently took a trip to Cuba. He is a Hampton Roads organizer with UE Local 160, and he is going to tell us, End the Blockade with Cuba. That is the title of his talk, and I'm sure he'll use the phrase at some point. Come on up, Charles. <laughs> so, my name is Charles Brown. I'm based in the Hampton Roads area, Hampton is at. And I'm with the UE National, but I do work with the UE 150 in North Carolina, and we're organizing the UE 111 in Virginia Beach, as well as local and Newport News. But today I'm here to talk about Cuba. Someone has a question? What does UE stand for? Glad you asked. So the UE is the United Electrical Radio Machine Workers of America. So based in Pittsburgh, and we operate, I think, in 29 states, if I'm not mistaken mostly the eastern seaboard and the west coast and some midwestern states, not in too many southern states, so that's part of what we're working on. That's another conversation there with the labor fraction, which I will cover some of today, but today I want to talk about the terms of labor with ending the blockade in Cuba. Now, many of you probably know, those of you here as, as well as those of you watching, we've had a blockade against the country of Cuba, and I don't even want to say we, Right, because I don't think anyone here or any of you watching have any issues with Cuba, but the United States government, and let's just make that distinction clear, right? The United States government has had an embargo against Cuba. Well, it actually started in the Eisenhower administration, of course, 1959. They had peace corps or um, peace troops, if you will, that went down there to quote-unquote keep the peace, if you will. Of course, it was to watch over them as they were doing their revolution. You know, the revolution went into effect in 1959, but there's a whole lot that led up to that, and that's still affecting us today. So, of course, you had the warriors and the real warriors who were fighting in the early 1950s, actually during the earlier years of Eisenhower administration. Of course, the blockade actually started during the Eisenhower administration, and then in 1962, we know about the bad pace, but there's a whole lot that happened in between that that's still affecting us. Many don't know that the U.S. tried to invade Cuba. In fact, they launched an invasion, which is what the Bay of Pigs is based on. Now, many people probably heard about that in our schools. We've heard about that. Many people don't know that part of what happened with the Bay of Pigs is that it was a huge failure. And the reason it was a failure is because the Cubans were already up on U.S. intelligence. They were already two, three steps ahead. One of the things we learned, and just to give you some background, I had a chance to go to Cuba last year. so. Almost a year from now, this was November 2021, as part of a delegation with the UE as well as an organization called Southern Workers Assembly to bridge gap and to meet with labor unions and to meet with uh, trade unionists down there on the island. But what led to the embargo is when the U.S. led this invasion, it fell, right? And they actually, the Cubans actually captured several U.S. soldiers. They tried them, put them on trial, and they executed them. And some may have an issue with the death penalty, but bottom line, they tried to invade their country, they captured them, they put them on trial, and they put them to death, and not too long after that, that's when Kennedy put forth some of the harshest sanctions within the embargo, and pretty much made it as harsh as it was leading up to the 1990s, 
And you have to remember, between 1962 and around 1989, 1990, Cuba still had a pretty good relationship with Russia. You have to remember, there still was the Soviet Union at that point. So they were able to pin heavily on the Soviet Union during that time period. And of course, many of us know about the collapse of the Soviet Union. And with that came what was called a special period. You had a lot of turmoil and strife because, of course, they lost one of the main economic partners as they lost their, you know, as the USSR. Now Russia lost a lot of their standing. So the reason it relates to what's happening now is because we know that there's a large contingency within the U.S., particularly places like Miami, who do not want to see the embargo overturned. Now, keep in mind, over the past years, with instances such as Hurricane Katrina, Cuba has actually offered assistance to the U.S. on several occasions. That's one of the main ones where they offered assistance when we had disasters of our own. Even with the COVID-19 pandemic, which we've been living through for the past two years, Cuba is one of the few countries on the planet that had a 95% vaccination rate. Now, I know some people watching probably had some issues with the vaccine, but, you know, that's another topic. But the point is they were able to vaccinate a huge majority of their island, and they did so despite some of the harshest restrictions that they've been dealing with with the blockades. And keep in mind, during the Obama years, there were some of the restrictions were lifted, but, of course, once Trump came in, he reimposed a lot of those restrictions. And, of course, we like to think about the Democrats being saviors, people of color, but, unfortunately, President Biden has kept and, in some cases, gotten tighter on some of the restrictions that President Trump instilled. So that goes to the whole, you know, two wings of the same bird, right? You know, we like to say blue no matter who, but when you talk about international issues, in many ways, you're getting hit by the same bird. And going to what Sanaa's touched on, talking about Israel, there's two countries that every year have continuously voted against lifting the blockade against Cuba, and that's, of course, the U.S., which we're standing on right now, and, of course, the other country being Israel. And we know that Israel has a very close partnership with the U.S., and in some ways they depend heavily on the U.S. for their survival for being honest and transparent. That's not anti-Semitic. That's not anti-Jewish or Zionist. That's just a fact. Right? If we're looking at the um, global scale. I'm not sure what that is, but we're going to continue going on. But I say all that to say this. Despite all these um, threats from the U.S., Cuba is still a thriving nation. Again, some of the uh, best medical scientists on the planet they send some of their best and brightest around the world to help out with catastrophes around the world. They have a school called Elon where they actually teach people from around the world, including the United States, how to do medicine. Of course, you have to learn how to speak Spanish if you don't already speak Spanish. But the whole program is free under the condition that these students, upon graduating, go back to their countries and serve in poor, underserved communities. So, despite this country having the reputation of being evil, communists, you know, these evil communists, and again, this is a trope going all the way back to the Cold War, they still, in many ways, lead the world in being the most humanitarian, right? Despite the U.S. having our reputation in a lot of ways. But I think the biggest takeaway I think we need for today is knowing that 
This action's not just happening here in Richmond, it's happening across the country. Those of you who don't know, there's action action coming up the first week of November. The UN is gonna be well they actually have this vote every year. They're gonna be having a resolution again this year on lifting the embargo, on the embargo on Cuba. We encourage people who can go to, uh, to go to New York City. If you can't, organize something in your locality, wherever you may be, and really push to let the U.S. government know that this embargo on Cuba is long past due and we need to stop it. So with that, I yield the floor. Thank you. All right, thank you so much, Charles. for Richmond Independent Radio and other community and low-power FM stations. Visit WRIR.org to listen in the archives. The music played throughout is a band called Prestiva, and Tymir Gore, a longtime defender, is part of that band, Prestiva. I'll step back in for a moment to remind you that this is Spirit in Action, though the content is provided by today's guest host, Patricia Stansbury, also known as Sunny Gardner, and her Groundswell program on WRIR in Richmond, Virginia. I've got all kinds of links for this program on my NordenSpiritRadio.org website, and I want to encourage you to support WRIR and community radio stations all across the USA, bringing you local and vital and alternative news and music that you just can't get anywhere else. Around 45 stations carry our Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul programs, and you can find the full list of stations and also links to our 17 years of guests on northernspiritradio.org. While there, please post a comment on our shows and consider supporting us, but I want to hustle us right back to the in-progress teach-in by the Virginia Defenders for Freedom, Justice, and Equality, back to Groundswell. Anna Edwards. Many of you know Anna Edwards is the chair of our Sacred Ground Historical Reclamation Project. I crossed that with the former president of the Virginia Friends of Molly. Well, good evening, everyone. Um, as she said, uh, my name is Anna Edwards, uh, chair of the Sacred Ground Historical Reclamation Project. I'm very proud that we celebrated our 20th anniversary as an organization, but also um, in the commemoration of the African burial ground and the elevation of the story of Gabriel's Rebellion uh, back on October 10th, so just two weeks ago. Today I'm here to tell you a little bit about my experiences in Mali in West Africa um, and the relationship between the United States and its aspirations in Africa. And one of the places that I wanted to start with this is to go back to the 1890s. In the 1890s, uh, as you may recall from our own American history, uh, the Plessy versus Ferguson decision was rendered. And with that began really the formalization, the codification of the Jim Crow segregationist era of the United States. We had come through the Civil War, we had come through Reconstruction. Um, black people had begun and had succeeded in building significant institutions in order to support their new freedom. And by the time we get to the 1890s, the pushback is so severe 
that the voter registration rate of black men, because of course they were the only ones who had the right to vote at that point, um, in terms of the black community, um, the voter registration and participation rate in the 1890s was 95%. We don't see that today at all in any contingent in the United States. And within five years, it had dropped to 1%. That's how effective the violent repression of that Jim Crow era had become. At the same time, in Africa, the colonial project was beginning. And Mali was one of those places that struggled uh, to keep at bay the French forces that came in and overthrew the Islamic forces that had been in power uh, since the 1860s. So in many ways, there are these interesting parallels for West Africa and for Mali in particular, in that the Islamic forces, which were not foreign forces, they were also Malian and had been for many centuries, had moved in and taken over the region that we understand as Central Mali. And so uh, parallel to the uh, events of the American Civil War here, and there are civil struggles like that going on in many places around the world at that point. Then we take it up to the 1890s and we have this shift now in terms of European colonization. They are making their moves in Africa and France is basically moved in and taken control of the Western Sahel or Western African region. And so for the next, uh, basically next hundred years, West African countries are going to be uh, struggling to slough off or literally overthrow European control of their countries. They're going to be struggling with the fact that the purpose of European colonization is to rebuild uh, Europe, to extract the resources of the various regions of Africa, all kinds of research, uh, resources, in order to enrich and to continue to strengthen and bolster Europe at the expense of other peoples. This is going to go on for the bulk of the 20th century until we get to the 1940s and the post-World War II period when we begin to see a rise in resistance and calls for independence. By the time we get to the 1960s, many and most of those independent struggles are successful. The problem continues, however, because the structures that have been put in place by France in places like Mali uh, is going to mean that these countries are still dependent on those European structures. In particular, money, the banking systems, military forces. More recently, the United States, as it has risen, in, as it rose in its influences in these areas, decided that it was uncomfortable with the influence being wielded by some of these other countries. And in the most recent decades, those countries include China and Russia. So AFRICOM, the Africa Command, was established in 2006 in Africa. And its purpose uh, was to serve as one of 11 of the United States Department of Defense combatant commands with a geographic function and mission that provides command and control of military forces. So that's command and control of US military forces, but also the creation of uh, joint activities with, uh, no, uh, with national uh, military forces in Africa. The definition from the website, so you can go to africom.mil in order to read uh, what I am sharing with you tonight. 
but AFRICOM is responsible for all U.S. Department of Defense operations, exercises, and security operations on the African continent, on its <coughs> island nations, and in surrounding waters. It began initially, uh, and uh, it began initially in the early 2000s, and became fully operational on October 1st of 2008. And by 2019. 44 African countries have partnered with Africa. Its role is to support and work in tandem, according to them, with U.S. foreign policy in Africa to support U.S. national interests. That's quite clear. It doesn't say to support African interests. It says quite plainly and openly to support U.S. national interests. And that means that every decision that comes out of the United States government, whether it's described as unitarian or humanitarian or not, is going to have at its heart the security and stability of United States interests. And that alone should give us pause and make us re-examine what we hear in the media, especially when it becomes a, a, a sloganeering kind of call uh, for one perspective on a decision that the United States government has made in relation to, to Africa. So I'm not going to go into too much more depth on this. Um, again, AFRICOM.mil, you can read their open declaration of what they are doing. One of the most interesting things is their list of exercises that, the, that AFRICOM is involved with in Western Africa, in Eastern Africa, uh, and in the open waters uh, in the areas on both sides. They're very clear about it, and it's very similar to what they're doing uh, in the waters between Japan and China and Korea. There is a Pacific Kong, and there are other military commands that this is a part of a larger system, okay? To close this up, I just want to share with you that I did go to Mali in 2010 for 10 days in 2011, for five weeks, and then in 2013 for nine days. In all three of those instances, I was there to participate as part of our sister city relationship with Segu in Mali, and this was sort of cultural exchange. But while I was there, it was impossible not to recognize that the poverty that that country is living with is a direct result of the interference in their ability to develop as a nation with an infrastructure precisely because of the way France treated them as they pulled out. They removed their railroad system. They simply removed it. All right? They left them without a road system. In the ensuing years, China has actually stepped up, not in the best possible way, but they are actually building roads in Mali that are facilitating further development. There's going to be a price to pay for that, and all countries have to be wary of the ways in which these other nations come in and offer help. But it is the only one that is offering infrastructure support, and that is going to make that almost irresistible for a nation that is trying to rebuild itself, right? When I was there in 2013, the coup that became most notorious had happened in 2012. And in that nine-day period, while we were there to actually take VCU teachers there and let them have a cultural experience there and look at some of the things that university to university we might do together, um, 
basically a new chapter of that uh, of the fighting uh, happened and we ended up having to take shelter in the capital city and wait out uh, the period until we could fly home because in fact the combatants were heading south and making their way to uh, to Bamako, the capital city. They made it within about 40 miles of Segu, and so that was why they asked us to relocate back to the capital. And all we could do was wait until that particular moment passed before we could actually come home. It's the closest I've ever come to a situation like that. I'm extremely grateful that it didn't get any further than that, but one of the reasons that it didn't is because France did arrive and send its military in to create a buffer they described getting help from somebody else and they wouldn't identify who that somebody else was. It turned out to have been the United States providing air power uh, to support the French troops in doing that. On the one hand, we're grateful that they were able to stop it. On the other hand, France at that point embedded itself in Mali and continued to receive aid from the United States, mostly military aid from the United States in order to be there. And one of the things to point out is that consistently throughout this period, since AFRICOM was there, again, stating that they were there, yes, for United States interests, but publicly declaring that they were there to help them uh, get training that would help stabilize the nation against terrorist activities. All that happened over that entire period was that the uh, destabilization of Mali progressed even further. And at this point, Mali is a nation that has lost its um, lost the ability uh, to have a productive relationship with the rest of the world. They did recently put France out. They finally have had it, and they put France out. And it's me. It means that there are other partners that they are looking for, and it means that they are in a process of trying to figure out how to restructure their nation going forward. So again, that's. A particular experience that I can describe because I was there, but my larger call again is for us to have the ability and the confidence to look up the material that the United States itself provides about its activities in Africa and to question and to critique and to become more knowledgeable because it's a part of this larger dynamic of the fact that we should be calling for and standing for no wars at all. This is an episode of Groundswell, the Sunday Garden production for Richmond Independent Radio and other community and low-power FM stations. Visit WRIR.org to listen in the archives. Thank you very much. Um, next up, we have Phil Moledo. He is the editor of the Virginia Defender newspaper and the coordinator of the Odessa Solidarity Project. Campaign. Campaign. I'm just uh, mixing all of our descriptors tonight. Get up here before I mix yours. Well, you're. <laughs> but let's uh, let's make sure we get a good shot of this banner here that uh, Cat put together. Um, in a very short period of time. Um, because as you know, we, we had this big event on October 10th, the uh, 20th annual Gabriel Gathering. Almost 200 people turned out. 
and then we weren't sure we were going to be able to participate in this National Week of Anti-War Protests, but we decided, hey, 60 other cities doing something, or some of those are quite modest, I bet we can get out there. And I went through the entire list of groups, and not just to pat ourselves in the back, but we are small, but we are relatively young and racially mixed. And that is not typical of the peace movement today, unfortunately. So I personally feel very, very proud to be out here today with the defenders and y'all. Now, my talk is about uh, an issue that's been in the press. I'm going to talk about Ukraine. Ukraine became a country in 1991. Before that, it had been not a country. It originally was... The name Ukraine, one of the uh, interpretations of it, is borderland. The Poles occupied it for a while, the Russians occupied it for a while, the Vikings had a major influence early on, uh, Kevin Rus, great uh, early uh, Ukrainian empire, was actually largely founded by Viking traders. Um, and, and so it, it, it was the last country in Europe to really develop a nationalist movement and then to become a nation. Um, it was a republic within the Soviet Union, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, on equal status with Russia and Georgia and all the other uh, Soviet republics. And then in 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. And these various sections of the Soviet Union, many of them became independent republics, one of them which was Ukraine. So Ukraine had a referendum, and they voted to be an independent country. And from the time that Ukraine was established in 1991 until 2014, Ukraine and Russia were at peace. They were friendly to each other. 17% uh, of... Um, of uh, Ukrainians are actually ethnic Russians. 30% speak Russian as a as a uh, primary language. Many have relatives in Russia and vice versa. There's intermarriage. And there was no problems. But by 2014, two things happened. One was, after the Soviet Union collapsed, the West, the U.S. and France and Germany and Italy and all, they wanted to see Germany reunite. It had been an East Germany and a West Germany, capitalist and socialist. They wanted to see it united and allied with the West. And the, the Prime Minister of, of uh, I'm sorry, the President of uh, the Soviet Union at the time, Mikhail Gorbachev, didn't want to see it happen because, after all, they were invaded by Nazi Germany and lost 20 million of their people and one third of their industrial capacity. They were not anxious to see a revitalized Germany. The security. So, Secretary, Secretary of State James Baker, James Baker, um, obviously modern Republicans trying to disrupt this event. Um, James Baker, Secretary of State, told Gorbachev, if you agree to accept the reunification of Germany, we promise that NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Alliance, which was formed uh, after World War II as an anti-Soviet military alliance and had grown from original 12 members to, I think it was 18 at that time, they said, we will not advance one inch eastward toward Russia. And Gorbachev said, okay, 
Since then, every new member of NATO, and they're now up to 30, um, 30, has been to the east, and a former Soviet republic or a former ally or a country that was at least neutral. Um, so that today, Russia is largely surrounded on its western flank by countries that are bound by Article 5 of the NATO agreement that if any one of them has a military confrontation, all the rest of the members are duty-bound to come to their defense. Now, Finland and Sweden, Finland has a border with Russia, they've asked to join NATO and that process is going forward. Ukraine and Georgia, which have borders with Russia, have also asked to join NATO. And the only thing that's holding up Ukraine is that the European Union doesn't want to let them in the Union just yet because of the corruption that is so rampant in Ukraine. Reuters news agency called it the most corrupt agency in Europe before the present crisis. They also ran stories about the neo-Nazi movement in Ukraine before the present crisis. Anyway, today, what Russia is, feels very threatened by this, by this increasing <coughs> eastward movement of NATO, which they know is hostile to Russia. Now, why is it hostile? Because Russia is a competitor. It's not in the club. Even though Russia had asked to join the European Union, and Putin at one point said he might consider joining NATO. But they didn't want him. They didn't want him. They want to reduce Russia to the level of a neo-colony like they have done to much of Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Because that's profitable. It's not profitable to have a strong, economically strong, or militarily strong competitor. This is why they don't like China. China is not at war with anybody. China is not threatening anybody. China has one overseas military base. The United States has 870 countries. But China is our big enemy. Why? Because it's an economic competitor, and they don't like that. So, 2014 comes along, and what happened? In Ukraine, there is a coup. A president who wanted more, wanted closer economic ties with Russia was overthrown in a violent coup in which openly neo-Nazi organizations played a leading role and was replaced by a president who was very friendly to the West and wanted to join the European Union and NATO. The United States was up to its eyeballs in that coup. John McCain, Senator John McCain, went over there and gave speeches to the protesters who later turned violent. Uh, Under Secretary of State for Eastern European and Eurasian Affairs, uh, Victoria Nuland, went over and passed out pastries to the, uh, to the crowds but later gave a speech to a bunch of business people in New York in its video that the United States has spent $5 billion supporting pro-democracy organizations in Ukraine. In other words, organizations that train people who didn't like the government to organize against them. And George Soros from the Open Society Foundations, who in this country likes to fund progressive social movements in order to make sure they don't get out of control, he brags about spending $5 billion also in Ukraine. So this coup happened. What happened after the coup? The new government was very hostile to Russia and quickly banned the use of the Russian language in any official business in the country, as well as Hebrew and a couple of other minority languages. The 
neo-Nazi organizations, which have their roots going back to World War II, when there were actual fascist armies that collaborated with the Nazis in pogroms against Jews and Soviet prisoners of war, um, and had previously carried out massive pogroms against Poles in the western part of the country, um, the most notorious led by a man named Stefan Bandera, um, the government openly tolerated these neo-Nazi groups. I'm not saying the government is fascist. I'm saying they openly cooperate and tolerate fascist organizations that can put five, six, seven hundred people on the street in uniforms with flags and marching along with Nazi insignia. And I don't have to tell you I read this. I don't have to tell you somebody told me this. I can tell you I saw this, not the 500. Um, but in 2016, I had the opportunity to go to Odessa, Ukraine for the second memorial uh, to honor the people who were murdered by a fascist mob in that city on May 2, 2014. People against the coup were attacked by a large fascist-led mob and 42 people were, were murdered. And this was the second annual memorial and the fascists were threatening to come back and in their words, do another May 2. So international observers were going over there and the Azov Battalion was, had set up roadblocks into the city to keep the international observers out. And they were stopping people at the airport, and if your name was on the list, you didn't get in. Three of us from the U.S., our name wasn't on the list. I feel kind of bad about that, but I, I hope it wasn't a ranking system. But whatever, however, we got in. And when we got to our hotel, there were about 20 members of the Azov Battalion with their lightning, uh, yellow lightning insignia that's drawn from one of the uh, SS Nazi units in World War II. They happened to be gathered outside our hotel. And then we went to the memorial, and fortunately, some three, 4,000 people turned out for the memorial, vastly outnumbering the fascists, and the day came out very well. But since then, I made many friends in Ukraine, and they half of them have had to leave, the other half are underground. You cannot post a social media comment against the government, or you will come and be arrested. Some 15,000 since the, the, the uh, February... Uh, 24th uh, invasion of uh, Ukraine by, by Russia. Why did Russia start this war? Right or wrong, it's hard to argue that it was unprovoked. That's what they tell us, completely unprovoked war. Russia saw NATO coming closer to it, saw a fascist tolerant government in Kiev, and I say Kiev because that's the original Russian pronunciation, not Kiev, it's Odessa with two S's, as it's been for hundreds of years, not with one S, as they put on maps now, because that's the Ukrainian version, even though 90% of the people in Odessa speak Russian. They felt threatened, and Ukraine wanted to join NATO. And now, you know, it's asked to have nuclear weapons stations on its soil. So we have this terrible situation now, where there is this war between people who are at peace for so long, Many of them have relatives on the other side. And the United States and the NATO countries have been pouring weapons into the fight, which is objectively doing nothing except keeping it going. The Kiev government will not negotiate so long as it has the backing of the U.S. And what would negotiation mean? Many people are presenting proposals. Ceasefire, negotiations, an objective referendum 
in Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine where people can vote on what they want their status to be, Ukraine, with Russia, independent, whatever. We don't feel that it's our place to make demands in this situation. We think that we, our responsibility is to point out the fact that it's the role of the United States in the 2014 coup and the steady expansion of NATO that brought this situation to the point where it is. And people are not talking about this. Unfortunately, we were able to get an op-ed piece into the Richmond Times dispatch this summer that laid out just what I was going to explain. And it's nice that they printed it. It was a surprise to us. We also gave them 18 footnotes from mainstream organizations and NATO's own website, so it was a pretty impeccable piece. But they did run it. But today, people still feel that this is a, a peaceful, democratic country that was attacked by this monster uh, under the leadership of this Putin who's crazy and wants to reestablish a Russian empire without ever talking about the threat that the U.S. and NATO has presented to Russia. We're not endorsing the Russian invasion. We're trying to explain why it happened and also point out that at this point, as near as we can figure, and this is a real challenge, to find out how much money the United States has sent to Ukraine, it appears to be somewhere in excess of $40 billion. And they admit to about $18 billion in military aid. That's on the State Department website, which is a different figure than on the Defense Department website, which gives you a little bit of an idea of how difficult it is to come up with a correct answer. But the non-military aid, which of course allows the, the Ukrainian government to use money it would have used for peaceful purposes to use them for their defense budget, that, that brings it up to about $40 billion. $40 billion when we can't provide baby formula to poor children in a crisis caused by supply chain episodes. We can't provide money to keep people off the street in the in, in the in the, the, the winter here. We don't we don't have a cold winter shelter in Virginia, in Richmond today. Because Catholic Charities said they had some problems and they couldn't open up theirs. And the city's not willing to put enough money into it to make sure that everybody has a warm place to stay during the winter. The prison industrial complex is on a money-making basis, whether it's privately owned or whether it's owned by the state. They're taking people who they couldn't find jobs for on the outside and putting them in prisons to exploit them. The healthcare system stinks. We have three systems in this city, Boston Forest, MCV, and HCA, Chittenham Hospital, all of which compete with each other, all of which are out for profits. And we just saw how Boston Forest has been screwing over the black community in the East End in order to make profits. I hope you've been following that. It's been in the New York Times and the local press. I've gone way over my time. I apologize for that. But this was an attempt. This, this today was just an attempt to open up the question of anti-war issues because they're not being discussed about. No one's questioning the official line. The news media is saying exactly what the government said, and it didn't used to be that way. During Vietnam, reporters would go out by themselves and find out what was going on. Now they're all embedded with the U.S. military and depend on the military to survive the dangerous situations that they're in. So where do we get incorrect information from? We're still in touch with people in Ukraine. So now this is in touch with many people, family and friends in Iran and the Palestinians. And has been back and forth to Africa. Charles visited Cuba. We're not trying to say we're the biggest experts in the world. But when someone tells you that two and two is five, 
and you go and look it up and find out for yourself that it's really four, then you know they lie. What we're saying is they're telling us that two and two is five about, about almost every international situation in the world, and they're doing it because they want the world to continue to flow money, capital, labor, cheap markets into the empire, the country with 800 military bases. So I hope this, was, this day was interesting for you. Um, we always print news in the, in the Virginia Defender newspaper on international affairs. We're going to take a walk down to Broad uh, and Belvedere and hold some signs for a little while. Not a long time, but we want to make a public uh, expression that we need jobs and education, not wars and incarceration. We need health care, not war. We need housing, not war. We need jobs, not war. Fight racism here at home, not wars abroad. Raise a voice against war and for peace. That's what we want to do. And hopefully, that, that message will resonate at the moment. This has been an episode of Groundswell, a Sunday Garden production for Richmond Independent Radio. Please visit WRIR.org to listen to any of our programs in the archives. And while you're there, if you're inspired to donate, or better still, well, not better necessarily, but you can also volunteer with our all-volunteer radio station. So that was Groundswell. I hope it was useful to you. Keep in mind the nonprofits who are working to maintain our actual freedom and liberty and justice for all. As Sonny, a.k.a. Patricia, told you, she sat in for us today for Spirit in Action with this rich teach-in from her town, Richmond, Virginia. I've got links to her home station and to the sponsors of and speakers from the teach-in all on northernspiritradio.org. There's much more coming your way. People doing world healing work everywhere when you join us again next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. And our lives will feel the echo of our healing.